I asked Chris to play that when I walked up, not because it's a theme song or anything like that. I'll be home for Christmas. Bing Crosby recorded it in 1943. The song comes from the point of view of a World War II soldier who wants to go home for Christmas, and he's asking for snow and mistletoe and presents under the tree. At the end of the song, it ends rather sadly. I'll be home for Christmas if what? Only in my dreams. The song was actually banned by the BBC. Did you know that? During World War II, it was banned by the BBC because they thought it would hurt troop morale. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. But the song was a big hit in the United States. It it became a gold record for Bing Crosby, and it's been recorded again and again. Even more recently, you've got Kelly Clarkson, Josh Groban, both recorded it, and it both hit the Billboard charts. So it's a song that's had staying power. And it's a beautiful song, but you have to admit, you have to admit, it's a little sentimental and maybe not realistic. You have this glowing picture of being home for Christmas when everybody's together and everybody loves each other and there's no drama, no trouble, no tension. Now, see, you're laughing and that tells me I've hit something here. A lot of times before Christmas, I'll just walk through the congregation, visit with folks. You do the same thing. I'll ask, you have any plans for Christmas? You're traveling, family coming in? One time I did that, previous church where I pastored, and I said, I said, well, do you have any plans for Christmas? Oh, yeah. Well, what's going on? Well, family's coming in. <laughs> well, is that not a good thing? Family's coming in? Yeah, but my son's coming. Well, why is that a problem? Well, his ex-wife is coming with the grandkids, and that's good. We love her and we love the grandkids. But my son's coming, and he insists on bringing his new wife. Yeah, that's complicated. That doesn't sound like this, oh, I'll be home for Christmas. Doesn't even sound like if only in my dreams. It sounds like a nightmare. Can you imagine? But you know, it's not unique. It's not unique. When I taught in the religion department, I'd often ask students, you know, you going home for Christmas? Almost always they were. And they were always looking forward to it. If nothing else, class was over. But quite often they would say, I'm looking forward to it, but I know I'm going to want to get back because when I go home, you know, I just, I want it to be such a good time, but we end up fighting all the time. We end up fighting. And I just want to get back out of the house. That's what happens even at Christmas time. There's drama that goes on. I mean, let's face it. Every family on some level is dysfunctional. On some level, there's always something there. And, and people are always 
at some level, living with a certain amount of tension. I shouldn't say always. It's not always the case, but it's frequent enough that you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, there seems to be a particular resonance over here. I don't want to hear about it. Do not say that. Ashlyn, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> oh, man. So, so we have these situations, and sometimes a parent can have them. You're, you're concerned about your child, maybe about your grandchildren. Maybe you don't approve about uh, about some issue or other. You don't approve about over, approve of, if I finally get my prepositions right, you don't approve of certain choices that are being made. You'd like to squash them. You'd like to correct them. You'd like to speak up. You feel like it's important to do so. And yet you want Christmas to be just like the song, you know, this wonderful time. And so what do you do? What do you do? You know, I think it's at times like that and like this that I'm describing right now that we really do need to put Christ back into Christmas. Now, by that, I don't mean engaging the culture wars. I don't mean when you walk through the line at Target and they say, Happy Holidays, you say in a loud voice, Merry Christmas. I don't mean that. I saw, I saw the Babylon Bee said that when you go to Starbucks and you place your order, you need to tell them your name is Jesus is the reason for the season. So they have to write that on the cup and they have to say it when your coffee's ready. Jesus is the reason for the season. <laughs> not a bad idea, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the realities of life as it is, not as we might want it to be, but as it is in the realities of life to bring Christ back into Christmas by ourselves embodying the message of Christmas. So what is the message? Well, we know it, but I don't think it's ever been put more clearly than in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, because we hear straight from heaven about this first Christmas and what it signifies. Luke 2, verse 8, it says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. First, you see, 
There's an announcement. There's good news. Euangelion in Greek. That is an announcement of a great victory or a great gift, some event that has an impact on huge numbers of people. It's good news. It's a glad tidings. So the angels pronounce this good news, and it's good news that will cause joy for all the people. And so this isn't, this isn't some dark message. This isn't some harangue from heaven. Here's an announcement of the good God's purpose. He's bringing something good into the world that brings great joy. What is it? Well, he's sending a savior, a savior. A savior comes for sinners. If you don't have sin, you don't need a savior, but God sends a savior because he loves sinners and wants to redeem them wants to bring them back to himself. There's no desire in God's heart to judge or condemn, but the reverse. God wants to save, and so he sends a savior. And the angels break out in celebration, and they glorify God, and they pronounce peace on earth. Peace, shalom on earth. God's desire for humanity, sinful humanity, is that they might experience that deep down well-being that we call shalom. And so this is good news. And this is what we need to embody when family comes home for Christmas or when we go visit family or when we deal with anyone in this season or in any season, we want to embody this message of good news for others. Jesus certainly did. He came as the Savior, and how did he comport himself? Well, he spent time with sinners. He sat down and ate with sinners, which was an extraordinary thing. We don't always realize how extraordinary it was. First, in the first century, when you ate with someone, you were announcing to all that you had a friendship, a bond with them. And so Jesus is bonding with this group of disreputable sinners. But not only that, he did it without first insisting on repentance. And that's the main point I want to make. E.P. Sanders wrote a really important book called Jesus and Judaism. And in that book, he combs through all the ancient literature in both the New Testament and in Jewish writings. And he says the thing that was distinctive about Jesus in regard to sinners wasn't that he was willing to sit down and eat with them. It was that he was willing to sit down and eat with them without demanding that they repent first. He says the Pharisees would welcome sinners even sit down and eat with sinners when they had confessed their sins and reformed their lives. Then they would sit with them. But they felt like to sit with sinners when they had not yet repented of their sins was to suggest that they were approving of their life. And, and that wouldn't be good. That wouldn't, be, that wouldn't send the right message. 
either to the sinners or to others. You have to maintain your standards after all. And the thing that frustrated them about Jesus was that he wasn't maintaining the standard. He was letting people in his company at too low a price. He would sit down with them and eat with them. Why would he do that? Well, he says two things that I think explain it. First, he says he's a physician. He's a doctor. Doctors don't pass judgment on their patients. They seek to help their patients. Now, sometimes that means telling them things they don't want to hear, but nevertheless, the whole purpose is constructive. And Jesus is a physician seeking the sick, not the well. And then I think perhaps even more even more to the point, he said the Father, because he loves all, causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on both the righteous and the wicked. Now, there is a difference between the righteous and the wicked. There are standards. But God's love, God's love is poured out on all. And so Jesus showed love to all. He was a savior for sinners. So he sat down with them. Now, you know, the thing about Jesus is you never really doubted where he stood on issues. He, he, he didn't mind speaking the truth, even if it was an unpopular truth. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, he wouldn't have ordinary people want to sit with him and stay in his company if he was always haranguing them over their sins. He didn't have to do that. Everybody knew where he stood. But he loved them, and they could tell that. Now, how do you embody the message of Christmas? I think you embody it by following the example of Jesus. And so Jesus shows grace and he shows love, even to people who are maybe not conforming to the will and way of God. But nevertheless, he does it. Why? Because God is leading with this message of grace. And that, frankly, is what we need to do. With family members that perhaps aren't living in a way that we would applaud, can we not nevertheless embody the message of Christmas and this joyful season and let them know that God loves them and loves us all? Can we not do that? Now, see, we hesitate. We hesitate. And the reason we hesitate is because we think that it's important that we establish that these things are not okay these behaviors need to change. This needs to be fixed. We think it's important to establish that. But I'm not sure we're not more like the Pharisees when we start doing that than we are like Jesus. See, we're, we're, we're feeling like we have to do that because we know this is serious. Sometimes we're talking about things that are really serious and, and you really know that changes need to take place. But if you keep doubling down on that, likely the right message 
well, the right message isn't going to get through. This is what I sometimes say to parents, especially parents, not only parents, but especially parents. The power of disapproval is almost always underestimated. And for parents, the power of their disapproval of what their children might be choosing or doing, that is not a small thing. I've talked with many people. I'm looking at Bob Thrift. I bet you've talked to thousands probably, Bob. We haven't discussed this, but I I have a feeling you'd say amen to what I'm about to say, that we need parental blessing, all of us do. If our parent does not approve, that is like, that's like an earthquake in our soul. That's something we feel. Even when you see children try to just brush that aside and act like it's nothing, they're trying to do that because it is something and it really affects them. See, we underestimate the power of disapproval. And so we think we have to continually double down on it to make sure nobody's forgotten that, no, we don't approve of same-sex marriage. No, we don't approve of drug use. No, we don't approve of who knows what. You see what I'm saying? We, we, we want to double down on that when everybody already knows what we think. Everybody already knows. And here's what we don't realize. Not only is there this tremendous power in the implicit disapproval, there's power in that. Many times people, people can't accept or won't accept the bad news until they can believe the good news. That is, there is a certain bad news. The bad news is we are sinners. And we need a savior. The good news is there is a savior. But many times, many times we have trouble acknowledging where we are until we see there is grace available. One of the most important theologians uh, in modern times is a man named Jürgen Moltmann. Moltmann, as a young man, was drafted into the German army and fought in World War II. After fighting in a number of battles, he was taken prisoner and he was moved to Great Britain where he was housed with other prisoners of war. The war had come very near to the end and it was obvious that Germany was going to lose. And the young men who were part of this prisoner of war camp were were broken. They They felt survivor's guilt. Each one of them had had friends who were killed during the battle, and here they were alive. They they felt the the depression of knowing that their country was, was going to lose the war. But then Moltmann said the most devastating thing was one day in 1945 in Camp 22 where he was in their hut, somebody came in and put, posted to the wall, pictures of Belzen and Auschwitz without comment. They put the pictures on the wall and walked out. These young 
German men looked at those pictures. And at first, some of them said, oh, it's just propaganda. It's not true. It's just propaganda. Others looked at the bodies piled up and they said, yeah, well, what about the bombing of Dresden? The Allies piled up bodies too. But he said, eventually, the truth came home to them. And he said, it was like we had a chokehold that was strangling us. When we finally realized what happened, he said the despair that came over them, he said many of us didn't want anything more to do with Germany forever, ever. Was this what we fought for? So that murderers could pile up bodies and Hitler could live another two months? Is that what we fought for? He said it was like they were suffocating in their grief. Two things, he said, delivered him. Number one, a chaplain gave him a Bible. He said he started reading the Bible and had, with very little understanding. But then he came to the Psalms, Psalm 39 especially, and he found words that expressed his grief, words that, that articulated the agony that he felt and the despair that had come over him. He reached the New Testament and Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was overwhelmed to realize that God knew what it was to be forsaken as he felt at that moment. And he said, reading the Bible filled him with the courage to live again as he was, this, these are his words, seized with a great hope. But then there was a second thing that made a difference. And this is where I've been heading. And this is what connects up with what I'm talking about. Let me read to you Moltmann's words. The other thing was the kindness with which Scots and English, our former enemies, came to meet us halfway. In Kilmarnock, the miners and their families took us in with a hospitality which shamed us profoundly. We heard no reproaches. We were accused of no guilt. We were accepted as people, even though we were just numbers and wore our prisoners' patches on our backs. We experienced forgiveness of guilt without any confession of guilt on our part. And that made it possible for us to live with the past of our people and in the shadow of Auschwitz, notice this, without repressing anything and without becoming callous. Do you see that? When they first see the pictures, all of them, what do they want? They want to say it's propaganda, it's not true, or the allies were just as bad. But when people in the name of Jesus Christ showed grace and shared good news and didn't condemn, they were shamed but they were also freed. 
they were able to face the truth without repressing it, without denying it, without explaining it away. They were able to face it because they had grace and hope. See, for a lot of people, you know, we want them to admit that their life is is out of kilter. They're not following the way of God. And people do need to admit that. We all need to admit that. I get that. I mean, that's absolutely true. But you realize that most of us are trying pretty hard to live a decent life. We're trying pretty hard, and we get tangled up and live really badly sometimes. But it's the only life we've got, and some people are clutching to it and you try to pry their fingers open, and they're not going to let loose of it unless maybe they see something better and they can let go of the old and take the new. Do you see what I'm saying? Some people can't face the bad news until they've accepted the good news, until they've seen it embodied, embodied, in a gracious, loving spirit. Now, again, does that mean there's, there's no difference between right and wrong? Of course not. Does that mean there isn't a lot of water under the bridge? Yeah, there's a lot of water under the bridge. There can be all kinds of dysfunction. But somebody needs to bring Christ into Christmas. Somebody needs to embody the message. That's what I'm saying. When Linda and I lived in... Uh, Fort Worth, we had a, a very nice house, but fairly modest house, but it was a wonderful neighborhood, and everybody took care of their yards. It was just a, a really nice community. Everybody took care of their yards except the person a couple of doors down from us on the corner lot. That yard was mostly weeds and dirt. That's all it was, weeds and dirt. You had a little bit of St. Augustine growing here and there, but pretty much weeds and dirt. So everybody's taking care of this yard. This yard is an eyesore. One day I'm walking through the neighborhood and I see one of the owners, a woman, with this, this foot-long instrument in her hand. There's a handle and then, then you know, a rod and it's flat on the end and sharp with two prongs. I recognized it instantly. My dad bought two of them when I was a kid. He gave one to my older brother and one to me. Said, get out in the yard and pull up the dandelions. It was a dandelion digger, whatever they're called. So there she was in her yard she probably, was, she probably was so frustrated with her husband, why won't you do something about the yard that she decided, I'm going to go out there and do something about it. So she got her little tool and she's trying to dig up the weeds. But there's nothing but weeds. Dig up the weeds. All you got is dirt. That was not going to help. She tried to dig them up, but that yard didn't look one bit better. Eventually, they sold the house. They moved off. Some other people moved in. I never saw them digging up weeds, but here's what I did see. I saw them set up sprinklers and begin to water, and they fertilized. And lo and behold, 
that St. Augustine that was just patchy here and there started taking hold and it started spreading and it started crowding out the weeds or at least most of the weeds. And the yard was transformed. Now there's still a weed here and there that you might want to pull just like there I'm sure there is in your beautiful yard that you take care of so well. There's still going to be a weed here or there. You got to pull it out. Our backyard's got all that Dallas grass. Have you ever dealt with Dallas grass? That's why I lived in Fort Worth. I hate Dallas grass. <laughs> so, so here's the point. Here's the point. With the people in our lives, water and fertilizer will do so much more than digging at weeds. Now, you establish a relationship, you embody good news and speak good news, then there may come an opportunity now and again to where you can say, you know, this may not be serving you very well. But to just focus on the weeds, the bad news, isn't gonna convey the good news. Somehow, as Christians, we need to figure out how to embody the Christmas story. And that's what my prayer is for all of us, that as our families get together, as we talk with people in our families, there may be lots of unspoken issues, but can we not seek to glorify the Lord and remind ourselves that he sent Christ that we might experience peace? Can we not try to convey that this amazing grace was for wretches like us? Can we not, can we not do that? There will be plenty of time to talk about other issues, but don't be afraid to talk about grace. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the first, the first word of the gospel is not you are a sinner, though you are as I am and everybody in this room is. That's not the first word. The first word is that God created you and wants good for you and wishes above all to bless you to bless you with his shalom, his peace, to make you whole. That brings glory to our good and gracious God, and that's what he wants. If you can believe that, if you can believe that, then can you let go of what's, what's ruining your life? Can you let it go in order to seize this fierce, wonderful hope? Can't you do that? I'm going to pray, and we're going to close the service a little differently today, but I'm going to pray and close the service. And when we do actually close it, I want to ask you to come forward. If you want to receive Jesus Christ, I'd like to talk with you about that. Okay, pray with me. Lord, may you help us by your good grace to be gracious to others, to love others. Lord, even when that's hard, even when our families might be dysfunctional, even when there might be issues, help us to love, Lord, and overcome, overcome uh, sin through grace. 
and prayer. And Lord, may everyone here follow after you. If anyone here who doesn't yet know you, may they come to know you now in the name of Jesus. Amen.